Section 17 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Section 17. Chapter 9b. Estimate of the Situation. Part 2. A written estimate of the situation. If, as indicated above, the terrain of psychological warfare consists of the private thoughts and feelings of each member of the audience reached, if the mission of psychological warfare is the accomplishment of anything from entirely unknowable results, such as an imperceptible change of mood, all the way through to complete success, such as organized mass surrender, if the capabilities of the enemy have virtually nothing to do with one's own psychological warfare commitments, and if the decision consists of choices of means and theme, if these peculiarities all apply, the usual estimate of the situation has almost nothing to do with military propaganda. Roughly speaking, this is the case. An attempt to apply the outline given in FM 101-5, Appendix 1, would produce only a lamentable parody of a military document. The situation of the military unit possessing psychological warfare facilities has relatively little to do with the capabilities of the psychological warfare unit. The morale of one's own men should have no effect whatever on the output of the radio script writers and the leaflet writers. In combat operations, military forces meet. In psychological warfare, they do not. In combat operations, it is impossible for two hostile units to occupy the same territory for any length of time without both of them degenerating into a chaos of armed mobs. In psychological warfare operations, both sets of operations can be conducted in the same media, can address themselves to the same basic human appeals, can use the same music, the same general kind of news account, and so on. Furthermore, no modern army ever went into operation with certain units designed as wholly and exclusively defensive, and certain others as wholly and exclusively offensive. The Great Wall of China is the world's most celebrated example of purely defensive planning, yet it protected Chinese offensive bases for 2,100 years. But in psychological warfare, the Japanese-language shortwave broadcasts from San Francisco had no imaginable effect on the American forces in the Pacific. The only people who could understand them were the Japanese-language officers in G2 and ONI offices. Their personal vexation did not matter. The offensive operations of combat troops are predicated upon finding the enemy, effecting contact, and either destroying the enemy or making him yield terrain. The defensive operations of combat troops, contrarywise, are planned with a view to resisting an enemy who has been met. In psychological warfare... Operators and enemy do not affect contact. The audience cannot strike back through a radio set. The enemy reader cannot throw a leaflet back at the bomber which dropped it on him. When American planes bombed German radio stations, they did not do so because the flight commander was trying to get German propaganda off the air. They did so because the Americans were trying to break up the entire German communications network. It is almost impossible to pinpoint radio transmitters and printing presses with such accuracy as to deny the enemy all chance of talking back. In a purely physical sense, there are only two sets of measures whereby an actual defense can be set up against psychological warfare. Each is a measure of desperation. Neither is considered effective. The Americans did not bother with either in World War II. The first physical defense 
consists of radio jamming and of the planned interception of enemy leaflet raids. Radio jamming is ineffectual, except in the case of an enemy possessing hopelessly inferior signal equipment. The Japanese tried to jam our radio at Saipan, just as the Germans tried to jam BBC. They impeded reception, but they never succeeded in blocking it out altogether. The second physical defense consists of destroying reception facilities. It is possible to sweep an occupied territory and to sequester almost all the radio sets in use. It is possible to issue a military order that any soldier or civilian found in possession of enemy printed matter will be court-martialed and punished. These measures are useful to dictators having secret police and strong armies having the Prussian level of discipline with the enlisted men regarded as robots. It is not to be expected that they would work against Americans. Therefore, propaganda does not meet propaganda. Combat forces meet. Psychological warfare forces pass one another in opposite directions. In American practice, the forces which countered enemy propaganda were those pertaining to troop information and education, morale, or special services. These did not concern themselves with propaganda to the Germans and Japanese. In the German and Russian armies of World War II, but not in the American, British, French, or Japanese, there were political officers attached to the units under a variety of titles. These often took charge of propaganda to the enemy, offensive, as well as indoctrination of their own troops, defensive. But the unrelatedness of these two functions let them split apart. Even here, the parallel between combat operations and propaganda operations breaks down. Rarely does it occur that there is a simple juxtaposition of forces, thus, that the audience, troops, are receiving equal input from both the enemy propagandist and our own propagandist. The issue is more commonly one in which the propagandist on each side attacks those troops which are retreating, cut off, suffering heavy losses, politically disaffected, or otherwise psychologically promising material for him. Of the factors which can affect troop or enemy morale, the presence of friendly propaganda is a minor one. The result then becomes complicated. The enemy propagandist is targeting exposed or demoralized units, while our own propagandist is reaching the well-supplied and well-informed units. Troops who are starving or subjected to inordinate losses will not have their propaganda resistance heightened by pep talks. A chopped-up unit has no means of enjoying USO facilities. Propaganda vulnerability depends most commonly on the objective situation of the audience. If the objective situation is good or neutral, one's own propaganda can supplement the good morale conditions. But even here, it does not and should not meet enemy propaganda frontally. Insofar as it can be tabulated, the visual propaganda situation at any given time would be something like this. The home audience is receiving friendly propaganda directed toward them, as well as the enemy propaganda directed toward them, while the enemy audience is receiving the propaganda directed to them by their own side, and the propaganda we are directing toward them. In each of these instances, the propaganda operators are themselves members of an audience. Furthermore, propaganda leaks, as it were, out of the channels into which it is directed. Additionally, propaganda in all countries has to compete with the normal day-to-day -day preoccupations of the listener, his food, his health, his hour-by-hour -hour activities, his tangible interpersonal relationships. Save for rare moments of intense crisis, propaganda can expect to occupy only a small fraction of the audience's attention. In dictatorships, the range of propaganda can be widened by polluting all news, all theater presentations, all churches, etc., and so forth, 
with the party line. But visitors to totalitarian capitals of both the fascist and communist varieties report that most of the common people have become calloused with apathy, overall disbelief, or skepticism as a result of overexposure to official indoctrination. Hence, a written estimate of the situation follows not from some special psychological warfare situation, but from the practical measures available. If desired, it can summarize the following points. 1. Definition of the audience. A. Medium through which reached. B. Anticipated attention, including means of getting attention. C. Pertinent characteristics from Propaganda Intelligence Report. 2. Psychological goals to be sought. A. Attention of the enemy. B. Present goal. If strategic, opinion or sentiment. If tactical, action. C. Ultimate goal. Applicable to strategic only. 3. Limitations of policy. A. National political limitations. B. Limitation by adverse factual situation. C. Limitations arising from one's own security. 4. Media available. A. Kind and quality of media to be used. 5. The propaganda man. A. Descriptive appreciation of a typical audience member. 6. Competitive factors. A. Listeners' non-propaganda preoccupations. B. Continuation of adverse indoctrination. C. Effective news available both to oneself and to listener. D. Competitive effect of hostile propaganda. 7. Relation to general, military, estimate of the situation. A. Timing relationships. Subcategory 1. Contingency plans. Subcategory 2. Contingency prohibitions. B. Contribution of psychological warfare to operations planning. Subcategory 1. Combat operations psychologically advisable. Subcategory 2. Combat operations subject to propaganda exploitation. Subcategory 3. Operations providing adverse propaganda with opportunity. C. Correlation of psychological warfare with Subcategory 1. Public relations programming Subcategory 2. Information and education plans Subcategory 3. Medical plans and reporting Subcategory 4. Counter-subversive functions Such papers might be of use, gathering together in a single document all pertinent facts. In most tactical situations, the situation would have obsolesced before the author of the estimate had finished his document. In strategic situations, it could not normally be made specific enough to be practical, at the operational level, without becoming hopelessly unwieldy. Each skill represented in the estimate does prepare other reports, and the practice of most modern armies indicates that it is better to conduct routine propaganda planning, supervision, and appreciation through liaison than to prepare elaborate documents gathering together the multifarious factors which actually affect psychological warfare. In most American psychological warfare facilities, especially in the theaters, the estimate of the situation consisted of a brief resume of home propaganda by the enemy, taken directly from propaganda analysis, comment on the audience by appropriate representatives from the State Department or other federal agencies, and discussion of the audience by some kind of psychological warfare, operations planning, and intelligence board. Some of the most valuable suggestions came from persons not concerned with propaganda, such as target intelligence people who could anticipate enemy civilian or military shortages, or economic warfare people who suggested vexations which the enemy listener was probably experiencing. The Question of Choice 
An estimate of combat situation is something like a diagnosis and prognosis in medicine. The estimate sets forth the situation, presenting the difficulties to be faced and the general range of pertinent fact, all in orderly array, like a systematic diagnosis. The plans are then drawn up in the light of the estimate. They are limited by the harsh, immediate facts of the situation. They resemble a doctor's prognosis, which may have room for several choices, but which does not open the way to speculative, creative action. Psychological warfare situations are usually fluid, save at times of specific tactical emergency, the appeal to an enemy unit, when it is surrounded, to surrender, pre-invasion propaganda for specific points. Therefore, the psychological estimate should not be presented as propaganda versus propaganda analysis. If it does, it will end as an unproductive and meaningless duel between the propagandists on the two sides. Nor should the estimate pretend to present choices with the pretense that these choices are definitely prescribed by the situation itself. In any field, an expert can hoax or befuddle a layman. A psychological warfare officer should present choices for what they really are, options open to him and his staff as creative writers. Policy issues, in specific cases, can be answered yes or no. This is not true of propaganda as a whole. The task of the propagandist is to create something which will arouse attention, will induce attitudes, and will eventually lead to action. It is a task of permanent offense. Its variations are as infinitely diverse as the imaginations of mankind can make them. Choice is perpetually before the psychological warfare propagandist, but it is the wide choice of what he can think up, not the narrow choice dictated by fixed terrain, by specific enemy capabilities, by concrete physical necessities. Adolf Hitler himself, in the near delirium of his last days of life, recognized this. He told his followers to hold out. German propaganda might still provoke the inevitable American-Soviet clash which would save Germany. He said he would choose one side or the other. He didn't much care which. Thus, at the end, the range of propaganda possibilities deceived even the arch-propagandist, despite the bold shrewdness he had shown in the past. He knew, as his generals did not, that the realm of the psychological, the factor of the unexpected, is always a large one and hoped to the last to turn it to his ends. His premises were right, even though his conclusion was fatal for him. Allied Operations Estimates become more complex when several nations fight on the same side. In a particular type of instance, estimates of the antagonist's propaganda capacity form a part of normal military operations. This occurs in the instance of Allied Operation, when the outside ally fears that the local ally may be subverted. Such was the state of France in relation to Britain in 1940, of central China in relation to the Americans in 1944, of the Balkan states in relation to the Third Reich in 1945. In such instances, estimate of the enemy propaganda becomes a vital part of the total military estimate. The principles stated below can be applied by changing the direction of their application. Propaganda analysis can, in situations like this, provide cues for effective action and correct timing. In this type of situation, the outside ally cannot afford to sit by and hope for the best. By black operations, he too must prepare to resubvert the local ally, if the local ally goes over to the enemy. In Romania, Bulgaria, and puppet Serbia, the Germans were not successful. In Italy, they created the fascist Italian Social Republic and brought a large part of northern Italy back into the war. In China, Allied pro-communist sympathizers hoped that the Japanese would subvert the Generalissimo so badly 
that America would build up Yenin as a precautionary measure. But the Generalissimo stood firm, and the Yenan maneuver lingered on as an unpleasant memory between certain Americans and certain nationalist Chinese. This type of situation mixes politics, economics, propaganda, and warfare to such a degree that no sound estimate can appraise one factor without including the others. Estimate of One's Own Capacity In preparing a routine estimate of one's own capacity, militarily speaking, the measurable factors of space and time provide guides for projecting plans into the future. It is possible to plan, at 18.30 hours, D-Day plus 8, the Smith force will have arrived at Tenalytown, meaning that eight days after the start, this result can be expected. Psychological warfare can be estimated in a loosely comparable way, provided the terms of reference are different. Naturally, no sane theater commander would rely on psychological warfare alone for the accomplishment of a military result. It is possible, nevertheless, to allow for planned good luck, good luck which one has created with many months of hard work. When psychological warfare is used in conjunction with invasion, its planned use, to judge by the results found in World War II, might often justify commanders in using minimum rather than maximum allocations of troops for the protection of lines of communication against guerrilla or civilian attack. If the Nazis had chased the Soviet peasants through the woods with soup kitchens, free movies, and mittens for the babies, they would not have had so many furious partisans sniping at them. Psychological warfare can be relied upon to a considerable degree to step up enemy panic in the application of a rapid forward movement. The Japanese in China panicked whole regiments of local volunteers plumb out of existence by the use of fast-marching, Chinese-speaking, plainclothes troops, some of whom may have been airdropped. In the Nazi establishment of the first salient through to Abbeville, the psychological aspects of the Blitzkrieg helped prevent the British and French from reforming a continuous line and led, eventually, to the pocketing of the British at Dunkirk. Psychological warfare can also be counted on, tactically, to speed up the reduction of isolated enemy positions when these positions are clearly beyond hope of rescue. All the psychological warfare people need to do is to go in with map leaflets, surrender leaflets, loudspeakers, and a nearby radio. The unit may not give in instantly, but the unit would be superhuman if it fought as well in the face of persuasion as it would have fought without psychological attack. In the mopping up of Japanese in the Pacific Island fighting, psychological warfare teams and techniques undoubtedly eased and speeded the process. These references are to tactical estimates. Strategic planning is beyond estimate. All it can do is to weight the possibilities a little more favorably than would be the case without it. If the United States had not dropped the Japanese surrender proposal in Japan all over Japan, the Japanese government leaders might have been more inclined to resist surrendering. If the Germans had not softened up the French before the Great Western Blitz of 1940, they might have needed more time, days or weeks more, to reduce France, and thus might have faced a united French overseas empire, even after France in Europe fell. The success of a strategic propaganda operation cannot be guaranteed in any plan. It would be foolhardy optimism to think that psychology can assume a major portion of responsibility for direct military results. It would appear that the Soviet Red Army, despite its propaganda-conscious communist background, never passed the whole buck to psychological warfare. The Russians never appeared to leave the artillery at home in order to take the loudspeakers or leaflet mortars along. They made brilliant, almost terrifying use of pre-belligerent propaganda. 
they used propaganda tactically with immense success in the taking of prisoners they used psychological warfare with a heavy infusion of political warfare more drastically for consolidation and occupation purposes than did any of the other united nations but like everyone else they seem to have used strategic propaganda for whatever it might bring in immediate generalized effect and the immediate production of windfalls tactical psychological warfare can be estimated though to a limited extent as part of a tactical potential of either the enemy or one's own side strategic propaganda can be planned and evaluated only in terms of the diffuse general situation with the reasonable and fair expectation that if properly employed it will better the position of the user it sometimes achieves results which astound even the originators but these results cannot be calculated except by hunch in advance nevertheless the operation is well worth trying since it has incalculable possibilities and is quite inexpensive in relation to the gross cost of war end of section seventeen recording by olivia